Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. And if you are using one of our Exodus journals, which are available in the back, that is on page 22. We are continuing our study of Exodus, and we know that Paul says in Romans that all of these things were written for our instruction. So this story of the Exodus, this account of God's deliverance of his people by the blood of a pure and spotless lamb is written for our instruction so that we might know God, that we might see his ways, that we might learn of him and glory in Christ together. And so uh, we're going to jump right in. If you are physically able, go ahead and stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. And we will begin in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, and we will read uh, the whole chapter to the first chapter, uh, first verse of chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. It says, afterward, so after Moses went and told the elders of Israel all that God was going to do, and they believed him, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they make made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day. As when there was no straw, as when there was straw. The foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. 
The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when, when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do. Let's pray. Father, Lord, would you give us grace to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. Give us humble faith to receive your word with fear and with trembling and with a desire to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This chapter seems very similar to Exodus chapter 1. And when we went through that text, we talked about singing through the night when it seemed like God is absent or missing, when it seemed like all of life is only bitter providence and God was teaching us to sing through verses of sorrow so that we might get to choruses of joy and to not forget that the chorus was coming. And today we pick up the same theme. You may ask, why? But the truth is that just like this is a repeated theme in this first portion of Exodus, it's a repeated theme in our own lives where God in his perfect wisdom and in his love does things in ways that we would have never chosen and in ways that we cannot understand. But today, instead of pursuing faith in God in the midst of a dark night for ourselves, we're going to be talking about pursuing faith in God and trusting him in the midst of opposition. Opposition for the gospel or opposition when we trust him for the salvation of others. So to put it another way, if in Exodus chapter 1 we were looking to God for faith in the midst of our own bitter providences as if we were the children of Israel in this story, then today we're going to be looking to trust him in the midst of opposition uh, as if we are Moses in this story and we are seeking to be used of him for the deliverance of other people and all we're met with is opposition and seemingly absence. My prayer and hope for us today is that God would give us a heart for those who are still in bondage and that with desperation we would turn to God in the midst of opposition. Now we're going to take this text in turn and we're going to observe kind of each scene with the major characters and unpack the text together and then we're going to roll it all up to see the implications for us today. So the first major character or scene that we see in this text and first theme is Pharaoh and the nature of opposition. So things have been going so well, right? God has overcome Moses' excuses and now he finally, after God gives him 
his brother and the grace to go and do these signs before Israel. Israel believes, even though Moses told God they're never going to believe me, that you sent me, and then they do. And so God has been working miraculously, and the whole story to this point seems like it's going from bondage to God breaking in to God promising this great deliverance, and this is building with momentum towards this climax where Moses finally appears before Pharaoh and with boldness, he and Aaron are like, this is what the Lord God has said. Now, this is one of the greatest rulers of the known world. And with boldness and clarity and conviction, they say, God demands that you let his people go so that they might worship him. And we're with them saying, yes, all right. And then, just like God promised, Pharaoh responds with a hardened heart. Now, this can happen to us where life works out exactly like God promised, but in the experience of it, it feels very disorienting and even harder than God promised that it would be. So in your own life, Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But when you experience said troubles, we cry out to him, Jesus, where are you? What are you why are you allowing this to happen? And so here, Pharaoh is responding exactly how God said he would. In fact, God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I will showcase my wonders against him and I will be exalted over Egypt and their gods. And that is exactly what we see at the outset of this passage, and it is astonishing, the pride of a hardened and calloused heart. Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord? You come and talk to me about some God. I am your God. Don't come and ask me for deliverance as if there's some other God besides me. You must have all this spare time on your hands if you have these vain imaginations about being free to worship some fake God, you've been my slaves and my family's slaves for 400 years, and you can dream on about it. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Even though we know from Romans 1, this is just as true as for Pharaoh as every other lost person that you've ever known as it was for you, that God in his perfect wisdom and in his kindness has revealed himself through all that he has made so that his Invisible attributes and his divine power can be seen and clearly observed through what has been made. So Pharaoh knows that God is there. God has made it plain and evident in all that he had made that he is there and that there was a creator God outside him. But just like all the lost world, he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the created rather than the creator, and he exalted himself in the place of God to where he said, who is the Lord that you would come and talk to me about some authority outside of me? Get back to your work. He cared only for his status, for his wealth, for the profitability of the enterprise that he had made on the backs of the Israelites. So you have to hear when Moses comes to him and he says, God, there is a God outside of you and he is the true God and he commands you to let his people go. Pharaoh hears, you are, you are somehow claiming that there's a God outside of me and that I'm now beholden to some other God and 
you want to rip apart my whole business. I've used Israel to build Egypt. I'm never going to let you go. And so he resorts to being so harsh to teach them a lesson, to ever consider being free, to ever consider uh, having any other thought of another God or even being free enough to have their own thoughts in general. I will work you so hard that you will be dehumanized and you will recognize that you belong to me. So this is, this is the response of Pharaoh and the nature of the demonic opposition, the, the antichrist posture that is in the world and is all over the world, that there is a complete rejection of any kind of idea of any kind of authority outside of the self the enemy and his taskmasters. Then in this next scene, we see the, the captives and the hardship of slavery. So look, so Moses and Aaron say, please, um, for the sake of our people, like our God has appeared to us. He doubles down and he says, no. And then we just read, he says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. So his response to the plea of God's people to be free for the worship of God is to clamp down on them and to put them into further bondage. So this command, sometimes um, I even look this up, this, this uh, phrase that is pretty well known in the world of making bricks without straw and the idea is that you have to make something without having the necessary resources to be able to do it. And you can look it up in a dictionary and it's like some, it said some uh, British idiom. I'm like, that eh, kind of goes back a little bit further than that. But this is not a command to make bricks without straw. That's a, that's a misnomer phrase. They were still mandated to make bricks with the straw. Pharaoh wasn't allowing for a different quality of brick. The command was, you're no longer going to be given the straw to make the bricks with. So now in addition to having an impossible quota during your 15-hour day, you now have to add to that time going out and searching for all the straw and gathering the straw. And you still have to make the same number of bricks. So this is them having a quota on an assembly line of making goods and services with the conveyor belt now turned off. You have to go get all of the supplies and make them yourself. He had a sadistic desire to use them and to see them suffer and to rid them of any notion of being free. And Pharaoh had his minions, his taskmasters that were to carry out his will. And the taskmasters ruthlessly beat, you can see in verse 14, they ruthlessly beat the foremen of Israel. So the, the fathers of Israel, the heads of the households that were um, the superintendents of all the projects. And they, they would ruthlessly beat these men who got the worst of the brunt of it and said, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And so I want you to hear, if you've ever read um, the story of Louis Zamperini before, uh, Laura Hildebrand wrote a book called Unbroken. She tells half of his story, but we see there him being imprisoned in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, 
and there's an oppressor there who's nicknamed the bird. And that, that is how I picture these taskmasters in Egypt, where they have a, just a profound sense of pleasure in being abnormally cruel. They're, they're sitting there. It's like, it's like the men who were hitting Jesus in the face while he's blindfolded saying, prophesy, which one of us hit you? And they're just laughing and loving it. And so here they are over the foremen of Israel and they're just sadistically loving. What's wrong, Israelites? Why aren't you making the same bricks that you were making before? And ruthlessly beating them all the while. So I, just, I want you to put yourself there in the position of the captives because we know these things are written for our instruction, right? They are being held captive and are enslaved in the harshest of conditions. Previously, the conditions were so hard that they were crying out to God day and night in anguish so that God heard them. And that was before. Now they had been given the hope of deliverance and the excitement that the end is in sight and we are about to be free. And so maybe their guard had come down a little bit. And then in, in the way of deliverance came even harsher conditions. What would that do to your faith? When you're bowing down and you're worshiping God saying, yes, God has delivered us. We're almost free. And then all of a sudden it gets harder. And it's day after day after day. Moses at the end of this chapter says, God, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak, it doesn't sound like it was yesterday. You don't use the language like, ever since I talked to Pharaoh yesterday morning, you have not delivered your people. This is some period of time where God allowed the darkness of night to get even darker before he brought his deliverance. And then you have the foreman and the opposition from within. So these are Jewish foremen, the, the superintendents of the projects. They go to Pharaoh and now maybe to Pharaoh's credit or to whatever system was set up in Egypt, they're given the freedom to go in and say, what gives? What are you doing? All of a sudden, you're requiring us the same quota, but you're not even giving us straw. And then your taskmasters are beating us. So they're showing up to Pharaoh all beaten and bruised and saying, this is so wrong. This is not right. You have to give us straw. And Pharaoh says, no way. You're idle. You're talking about worshiping some other God. You go out and do the work that I already commanded you to do, and you're going to do it without straw. And so Moses and Aaron are waiting for the foreman to come out of the meeting. And the foreman come out, and they are ticked. And they take it out on Moses and Aaron. It says, they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So this is what Moses and Aaron get for following God, for leading the people of Israel into the hope of deliverance, for going to Pharaoh and doing what God said. As a result of them following God, the people got greater oppression, greater punishment, and their own people are now turning against them, saying, what have you done? Now these foremen did receive the worst of the increased persecution. So I'm not saying that any of us should pretend that we would have responded differently. But 
rather than continuing to believe God that he was the one bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? That any of this increased hardship was only because Moses and Aaron had done what God had told them to do. Rather than believe God and go to God, they bring their complaints to Moses and Aaron and blame them for their persecution. They preferred slavery to the costs that they were to endure on the road to deliverance. This is the same sentiment that the Israelites would have later when they met hardship in the wilderness and they said, oh, that we could return to Egypt. At least we had food there. I would prefer slavery to hardship following God. So instead of turning to the Lord, they complained against Moses and Aaron and their complaints were ultimately against God. And I, I thought as I was reading this, and I'm not saying that the foremen were not ultimately part of the children of Israel or belonging to faith in the coming Christ, but I thought about the soils that Jesus talks about, the, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, those who prefer comfort and safety and pleasures to the cross of Christ. So as long as they can have a Jesus that doesn't demand too much of them, where they can have their pleasures and Jesus too, then they will follow Christ. Or as long as there is no opposition to Christ for the sake of the gospel, then they will follow Christ. But as soon as opposition rises on account of the word, as soon as they experience Christianity that is accompanied with a cross, which is to say real Christianity, then they fall away. When in the course of God's salvation, their circumstances actually grow worse, they abandon Christ and his people, and they say, nothing ever seemed to change. It, I, I, we've had people who left this church to say, it didn't make a difference. I followed Jesus, and my life was the exact same. So as to say, I sampled Jesus, but when he didn't make my life better the way that I wanted him to, I didn't need him anymore. So it wasn't actually ever about experiencing salvation from my belittling of God and a need of salvation from my sin. I just wanted to add Jesus to it. So you have the foreman and their opposition to Moses, and now we come to Moses and desperation for God's salvation. If you look in verse 22, it says, Moses turned to the Lord. Moses turns to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Now, listen to this. In the midst of his complaining to the Lord, he never loses sight of the fact that God is sovereign. Right? He knows, God, if, if this evil has happened to this people, you have done it. And you are the one who sent me. So why? What are you doing? For since I came to favor to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, sounds pretty disrespectful, right? Do you pray like this or do you feel scared too? It sounds just, I, I, I joke around with the other brother pastors in this church. Like sometimes I read the Psalms or prayers and I'm like, I'm gonna pray this, but like, I'm quoting him, you know, just make sure you don't understand, like you understand that I fear you and I'm also saying this. But 
this was not Moses not fearing the Lord. There is a difference in bringing a complaint to God and complaining against God. So if you're doing our two-year reading plan with us, you read this in Numbers 14 or pretty much the whole book of Numbers where the Israelites are just constantly grumbling and complaining against God and there's these terrifying phrases and God heard it. And then God's anger is kindled against the people of Israel for their grumbling and their complaining because all of their complaining was ultimately against him. But there is a difference in bringing a complaint to God and complaining against God. In this prayer from Moses, Moses isn't doubting God's character and he's not full of unbelief. He's just longing for God to do what God had said he would do. And he's reminding him of it. And he's asking him, God, why does it look like the enemy is winning when you have made these great promises to your people? In the midst of severe opposition, instead of giving up or taking things into his own hands, Moses turns to God in prayer. He's going to God with his griefs and with his burden, and he's pleading with him. And God will often bring you to this point of longing and breakthrough. He'll bring you to a point where it felt like breakthrough is right around the corner and you got an increased hope and then things get worse than they were before. And he's teaching you to turn to him and to plead with him to actually feel a burden and an anguish and for you to cry out to him and say, God, where is your salvation? Where's your deliverance? Where is what you have promised? And then God's response in the next verse is, now you will see what I will do. Behind and above the dark backdrop, underneath and all around, God is there. He never left. He's been there all the while. And the dark, Psalm 139 says, is not dark to him. And breakthrough is coming. And so we have to pray and bring our complaints to God, all the while remembering that God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What shall man do to me? While we're praying and longing for breakthrough, and it feels like God is not our helper. You have to carry those two things in tension. So today, how do we take this chapter? That, that's the chapter, right? Let my people go, no Increased hardship and labor, complaining to Pharaoh, complaining to Moses and Aaron, complaining to God. Chapter 5. So what do we do? Well, today, we still have the devil and his taskmasters all around. And I'm, I'm using them as an example to say the devil and those who persecute God's people. Now, God's word says about the lost, about those who are outside of Christ in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that they are in the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So that is the state of all who are outside of Christ, that they are in bondage to the enemy and they're being held captive by him, enslaved, enslaved to do his will. And many, like Pharaoh and his taskmasters before them would respond to all of your bold proclamations about thus says the Lord 
with who is the Lord that I should obey him? What are you talking about? They, they see your belief in the truth as intellectually lazy. And they increasingly think that your beliefs are bigoted and hateful. And so these taskmasters are, so right now a lot of the persecution from the church, of the church is going to come from those who are driving the cultural oppression or to borrow the language from Orwell in 1984, people who are members of the party, right? And they have bought into celebrating sin as human rights, extolling anti-creation and anti-Christ social and family structures as mainstream ideals that you must accept or risk being canceled or ostracized. And all of that is apart from even claiming the authority of Christ. So the belief of our world and society today is that the self is God. And truth must bow the knee to feelings and what I feel to be true. You must submit to me. And so they believe that your Christian belief, which is the truth, needs to be beaten or canceled out of you. We will just oppress you until you jettison these beliefs. Now, they have been snared, ensnared by the enemy. Paul writes in that passage, they've lost their senses and they've been held captive by the devil to do his will. And his will is to glory in what God hates and to persecute God's people. So, is there no hope for them? And how are we to respond? How, how should we live in the midst of so much opposition to Christ and the gospel in the world where you live and work and live next door to? Well, here Paul in the preceding verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Paul writes to Timothy, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So there is hope for those who are presently enslaved and ensnared by the devil of being set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, just like happened to you. And so the tendency for us is to, to uh, protect ourselves or to guard against the opposition from the world or not see it as a true attack on Christ or on the gospel. And so it becomes this conservative versus liberal match or it becomes an opportunity for arguing or for quarreling not patiently enduring evil and you can start to see other people as enemies instead of as captives now are they enemies of the cross of christ yes 
are many of them enemies of Christ who will never repent. Yes. Do you know who are enemies and who are captives that Jesus is going to set free? No, you do not. And the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44, how you should approach enemies. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So in modern day, the captives are to be prayed for and called out of slavery. Many of these captives and even the taskmasters who are currently in the enemy's bondage and who are persecuting the church of God are going to be those who will come to repentance and enter into the life of Christ as they, like the Apostle Paul, meet Jesus on their way to persecuting the people of God. And then God gloriously saves them and sets them free from mission and says, go get more captives and see them set free. So it is very important that we recognize and realize that in this story, as we are reading it today, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are not in captive. The enemy has no hold on us. We have died with Christ and have been made new creations and have been set free. We literally are seated with Christ in the heavenly places and have one foot in heaven and one foot still on earth. And we are seeking to mediate for people and be like a Moses to declare to them the truth of God and the freedom that only comes through Christ by the blood of the Lamb. So we are preaching Christ crucified and raised to those in bondage so that they might know the freedom of God. We want to see others come out of their slavery into the freedom that only Christ can offer. And this is what brought our family to Brattleboro. We came, we're praying through the town and we're observing the different idols of the town and seeing a people who had exchanged the truth of God for worship of many different things. Then it was so clearly that God impressed on our hearts that many of these people were like sheep without a shepherd and that there were many in this town that he had called to eternal life. Now, that language assumes that in him, before the foundation of the world, he chose them to be predestined to adoption as sons, to the praise of his glorious grace. So there are people in Brattleboro right now that are elect to eternal life, that God is going to redeem and draw to himself, and right now he has not. So Paul writes earlier in that same chapter, in Second Timothy 2, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So don't miss what he's saying. He is saying the reason why I suffer much to get the gospel to everyone who is out there in this town And he uses the language of endurance because it will be costly. He says, I endure it all for the sake of the elect. He is using the language of, I know that Jesus has appointed people to eternal life. 
in all these places that I go, and I'm already treating them like a brother or a sister in Christ. That's powerful language. I'm going to retrieve from my heavenly Father those whom he has called to himself, and I am willing to endure whatever the cost may be in order that they might receive the eternal glory that he has called them to. When I, I think about enduring everything for the sake of the elect, in a much smaller picture, I think about fostering to adopt and fostering our son Asher and enduring a lot of costs, a lot of hardship, a lot of difficulties so that I might have my son. And now he's forever in our family. Given my name, he's mine. And he has this inheritance, this, and he was out there in the town not my son, seemingly destined for eternity of not knowing God, of being far from Christ and his covenant and his promises. But we went and got him and brought him into the family. And so there is a temptation in the midst of our current cultural moment and preaching Christ to a world that opposes us and seeking to see people delivered out of bondage in the midst of their slavery, there's a real temptation to take the position of the foreman. And for us today, that would be begrudging the opposition that comes from standing with Christ. Right? There, we, we're frustrated and angry at those who would proclaim Christ in such a way as to shake things up. And it incites more anger and more opposition from the world against Christians, but at least they're proclaiming Christ where we would prefer silence and the status quo. Yes, it's slavery, but it's the slavery that we know. Sure, those who are elect and destined to eternal and glory in Christ are enslaved, but we'll let someone else take the gospel to them or we'll be content because God will have his people whether or not he uses us, which is true. But do we not want to be used? Is Christ not our master? Have we not been bought with a price so that we have been set free in order to bring the gospel to those who are still held captive by the enemy to do his will? The foreman preferred the comforts of a low-key slavery. It's not victory and it's not deliverance, but at least it's not producing increased suffering and hardship. But God is inviting us today to be a Moses, for us to lead God's people out of bondage into the salvation that is found only in Christ. And we have to remember that the exodus has already happened in Christ, offering himself in the place of his people and setting people free by the blood of the lamb. And the exodus is happening all over the world as people are leaving their captivity because Jesus is setting them free into his life. And we have been given the power of the gospel to scatter the seed and to see people come to life. And so the question for us is, why not here? Is Brattleboro too hard for the Lord? Are you tired of the narrative that New England is just hard soil? When we say that, we are saying God has an easier time sowing seed in other places, but he has a harder time here. I'm tired of it. And I think you're tired of it too. So there is a real danger 
of us not seeing a harvest because we're not sowing. And so if we're not sowing the seed of the gospel, then that is the first place for us to repent because we have been blessed to be a blessing. We have been brought free from our sin and our slavery in order that we might proclaim liberty to the captives like the Savior who indwells us. But if we are proclaiming the gospel, then is it not right to pray with Moses and to bring our complaints to God and say, God, how long? We have to ask ourselves, are you okay with Pharaoh having his way in Brattleboro? It makes me angry to think that the enemy could think, oh, Rivertown, to worry about them. They'll just get together on Sundays and they'll pray a little bit and they're mainly consumed about how Jesus will meet their needs and how, how they'll love each other and care for each other. But you don't have to really worry about them making too big of a stink in the town. They're not really praying and they're not really sharing Christ. They're just content to be set free. God forbid. Let's be like Moses together, bringing our complaints to the Lord as we look around and we ask him, God, in the midst of us bringing our burdens to you, we want to bring the burden of the lost to you. To say, I'm not okay with having brothers and sisters who I'm going to spend eternity with still stuck in slavery in our town. So a first step, church, is for us to plead with him to get a passion for the mission and for the church of God. For you to care more for the mission of God and the church of God than you care for your own life. That we would look to Christ and get such a burden and a passion for his glory and his honor in the world. And then we would pour out our hearts before him. Because Christ is not receiving the honor and the glory that he is due from our town. And so we must cry, how long, Lord? It feels like you have not delivered your people at all. Now listen, I don't say that because I disparage the work that God has done to date in these nine years of being here. He has done a work. Many of you have come to Christ in that time or have grown in grace and in the the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in that time. He has been working. But are you content? Does it feel like he has done what he has promised us? And is the fault with him? Or could it be that he is allowing the night to get darker so that his people would actually cry out to him in desperation, no longer making peace with the captives being captive, so that he could teach us to pray, so that he could teach us to come to him like Moses and actually make us watchmen on the wall. I'm almost done. Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7. God says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night, and they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This is faith. And this is what God wants for you and what he wants for our church is for us to be the kind of church that takes no rest for ourselves and gives God no rest. We're just coming to him all the time. Let's try to annoy him if we could. Where we say, God, you have not delivered your people. Do you not care for your glory? Do you not care that Brattleboro mocks you to your face? That they've turned the created order upside down and all the while the church of God stays silent? Should it not matter that there are hundreds of believers 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit and given his gospel? Should there be weeks where we see no effect? God, how long? Lord, if we're not being faithful, then help us to repent. But if we are being faithful, then where are you? And why will you not be true to your promises? He calls it faith. He says, will you give him no rest until he makes Jerusalem? That is his church. Until he makes his church a praise in the earth. Where people praise the church of God for faith in Christ and for the beauty of holiness that adorns her. So I'm going to close with reading Psalm 79, portions of it in Psalm 80. I invite you to turn there. But I want you to actively listen to these prayers and for us together to make these prayers our own, that you would learn to pray to God like this. And I want you to hear as we read these together the corporate nature of the prayers. These are not just God help me or God I really want you to do these things. This is a congregation with one burning heart joining their hearts and their voices and saying, God, this is our common plea for your name. So I'm going to close by reading this as a prayer. And I am praying that when we come to him in faith for his glory, that we would hear him respond in his perfect timing. Now, see what I will do. So Psalm 79, you can read it. You can bow your head in prayer. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance, the church. They have defiled your holy temple and they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the, hair of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem and there was none to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Verse 9 and 10, help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Psalm 80, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations out and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches it sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. 
so were the early days of our church as a planting. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from its forest ravages it and all that moves in the field feeds on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the son who you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.